With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of March 6, 2017. On this week's show, we're going to talk about college basketball matters, including Grayson Allen's emergence as the latest Duke basketball villain, Northwestern's likely first-ever March Madness appearance, and the impending first-ever Ivy League basketball tournament. Scott Rabb will join us to discuss Your Welcome, Cleveland how I helped LeBron James win a championship and save a city, his self-deprecating LeBron-celebrating sequel to the LeBron-excoriating The Whore of Akron, an Ali Raider of 538 will come on the show for a conversation about Lebratis, the poker-playing computer that just beat four pros, and how we should feel about the fact that artificial intelligence has now outpaced humankind in every mind sport. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis author of the book's Word Freak, and a few seconds of panic. When did Scrabble get beaten, Stefan? Uh, circa 1998 was when the computer program really started to, to have an edge. How do you feel about your mind sport being two decades dumber than yeah. poker? It's later than checkers, though. <laughs> so fuck checkers. <laughs> Labratus. It's the whore of Carnegie Mellon. <laughs> Stefan is uh, somewhere between uh, checkers and poker on the uh, intellectual spectrum. A great place to be. Uh, and with us from New York, it's Mike Pasca, the host of Slate's Daily Podcast, The Gist. Hey, Mike. I'm just excited to get a chance to rail against the further degradation of academics in college, the playing of one or possibly two games by Ivy League institutions. It is the death knell of all I hold dear. Save it for the show. Oh, um, this is, this the, is show. the show. Sorry. Yeah. I'd hate to skip. I'd hate to skip out on my opinion. I have to rail against this. Uh, very uh, good to the to the listeners that you announced your railing. You don't want to mm-hmm. get a, a railing my position by the time the segment comes. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll discuss a trio of questions in rapid fire fashion. 
those three being, what is the deal with U.S. soccer demanding players stand for the national anthem? Why is Tim Tebow playing baseball? And would former NFL running back Arian Foster beat a wolf in a one-on-one fight? These questions have been announced in order of importance. Join Slate Plus. I disagree. To find out the answers to all three. They can all be determined scientifically with the help of Libratus. It is just $49 a year, and you'll get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. On Saturday night in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Duke fell to UNC 90-83 to in a college basketball game in which Michael Jordan came on the court at halftime to say that for North Carolina football, the ceiling is the roof. And the roof is on fire. The ceiling is the roof. The floor (laughs) is the ground. The chair is against the wall. (laughs) In the first half, Duke's Grayson Allen got a technical foul for elbowing a North Carolina opponent in the face. An incident you might uh, chalk up as incidental contact, if not for the fact that Allen seems to do the sort of thing every time he takes the floor. A man for whom no contact is incidental. Back in December... He was suspended indefinitely, which turned out to be for a single game after tripping a player uh, against Elon, which was the third time in the span of the year in which he tripped an opponent. He also looks like Ted Cruz, which makes him even more hateable. So J.J. Redick preceded Grayson Allen in this lineage. And J.J. Redick has a podcast on Yahoo. And he had some interesting thoughts on the fact that there is a Duke basketball villain lineage. Let's listen to a segment from Reddick's podcast. This is from last February when Allen's infamy was uh, just beginning. And I think it's fine for an opposing fan base to choose a player to root, root against or maybe you dislike certain guys. My issue, though, is I think the media has perpetuated this white Duke villain myth as much as anyone. Grayson is one of the nicest guys I've ever met. John Shire is one of the nicest guys I've ever met. Never seen John Shire do anything dirty. Greg Paulus, one of the nicest guys I've ever met. Chris Collins and Steve Wojciechowski, I get two complete assholes, both of them. No, I'm kidding. They're great guys. You know, and and me too. I, I probably, in a way, brought on some of the animosity towards me with antics, the smiling, the head bobbing, the trash talking. But to be honest with you, it was more in reaction to the hate that was already coming my way before I ever really did anything to warn it. So I wanted to have this segment because I'm confused about my feelings about Grayson Allen. As a member of the media, I've done my part to uh, fuel the hatred of Duke players. But I feel like Allen is just like a bit too on the nose. He is literally tripping opponents. Uh, and I feel kind of like a strange pity for him. Is that weird, Stefan? No, it's not weird. He's, you know, he's pitiful in some ways because he feels the need to do this. And a lot of it is instinctual, obviously. But what Grayson Allen does is play into the stereotype. He is perpetuating the stereotype. And I think it's worth noting here that I think we should deconstruct the history of the stereotype. And this is not something that originated only at Duke. I remember when, uh, when I was an undergraduate, in the 1980s, the early 80s, fans would pick a point guard, a white point guard on the other team, 
we would cheer every time he touched the ball and then stop cheering when he got rid of the ball. It was pretty funny. It was a great sight gag. It was a great oral gag. It was also a racial gag. And Duke's image is of a white frat school. And that is where this, this the, that's where this stereotype uh, originates. It's a lax bro school. The data don't back that up. Duke is 48% white. I looked this up. 21% Asian, 10% black, undergraduate student population. The country is 63% non-Hispanic white, 12% black, 5% Asian. But this is obviously not about uh, data. It's about perception and the scrappy, privileged, annoying David Eckstein Duke basketball player fits the image. Well, the Duke basketball team, though, is more white traditionally than top-level basketball teams at another school. You know, so? Well, so on your student he, he body told, statistics. He told you. <laughs> but the, stu- the, the like racial composition of the student body is like completely irrelevant. No, I was going to defend that in as much as that's how we think of Duke. We think of it as a privileged, elitist Southern school that is really more Northern than Southern. You said, Josh, in the beginning, you know, uh, you referenced Grayson Allen's incidental contact. Um, it does seem that every time he comes into contact with an opponent, it is an incident. And I'm certain that it's informed by his whiteness, by the tradition, but it's also largely informed by the actual incidents. And I watched the elbow and elbows happen all the time. But this wasn't an elbow under the glass. This was an elbow on the top of the key where, very subtly, Grayson Allen after he threw the elbow, his own head jerked back, maybe to try to sell the fact that there was just some scrapping going on. I think he's a little bit of a dirty player. I don't care if J.J. Redick says that all these other players were nice. Notice how he didn't include Christian Leitner in that list, the er-dick <laughs> villain from uh, from Duke. Right, so I well, think and, when it, and he didn't include the er-Duke white point guard, Bobby Hurley, who really yeah. started this tradition. But but what, what's going on, really, is that Mike Krzyzewski is such a lightning rod, and but also at the same time, much like an actual lightning rod, untouchable to some extent, as a great coach and as royalty in basketball, that perhaps it's hard to uh, go after Krzyzewski. He doesn't touch the ball. You can't boo him on every possession. So the avatar of Krzyzewski becomes his white point guard or white ball handling player. And uh, that's one way for opponents to express themselves. It is safe to go after white players in this way. Um, And it's interesting to think about why that is. Do you have thoughts on why that is? Why do you think? I'm pawning it off on you because I'm not I'm not sure what I think. I mean, Duke does stand out, I've made this point uh, a few minutes ago, for the fact that it it has been able to maintain a high-level basketball program while maintaining a higher proportion of white players on the court than is typical for the sport. And I think there's some, I would hate to say this around Duke, because so much of the fair criticism that the program gets, the alums and fans say it's just because you're jealous because we have such a high level of achievement and we would never do anything like re- recruit, you know, one and done players. <laughs> and we would never, you know, lower our amazing academic standards. And we have the highest level of ethics of any program in the history of uh, the sport. But I do think that there's something a- around white fans going after white players, there is like a jealousy component or you can sort of see yourself in a player and think, 
I don't I don't know. Maybe it's like that you identify with them more, so you feel like more of an opportunity to critique them that you think it's more fair game and I I feel like I'm uh, I'm babbling here. Yeah, maybe as the student body you think of whether it's true or not that the white player is more likely to come from a background like yours. Uh there's probably something going on with an acknowledgement that essentially we're renting the services of these great black players who maybe wouldn't even qualify for our school. Perhaps the thinking goes. I was trying to think beyond Duke are there many white villains? There was that guy, Marshall Henderson, who was, you know, brought it on himself. But are there many black players who are villains on the college level? I just don't think we get to know them enough or they have improved villainous or their villainy isn't the kind of fun cartoon WWE type villainy. It's, you know, actual transgressions with the law. And I do think that it comes back to some version of uh, thinking of the white players as something more akin, giving them more humanity, the whole scope of humanity. Whereas with the black players, um, you know, writing them off as uh, commodities. I think that something like that's going on. I think that's more what's going on. I think it's a safe way for people to channel their unspoken discomfort on some level with the nature of sports. People aren't going to articulate that like, wow, there's, 12 black players on the court and no white players, that makes me feel weird. And one way to do that is by sort of this reverse critique of or this reverse criticism of what we see on the court. Hey, look at that white guy. How anomalous is that? It's strange because there has been a tremendous decline in the number of white American players in the NBA. There have been good stories about that in the last year, how it's down to somewhere around 30. And so you could make the argument that guys who fit that demographic group, and this is kind of dangerous uh, territory to get into, but we're all adults here, um, that you to make it to the NBA or to the high level of, of highest level of college basketball as a white American player, it's like a harder road, like demographically. It's just like there are few, as a proportion, there are fewer white American guys who make it through to each higher rung of the sport. And so it's interesting that when I think of Greg Paulus, who I think is the, of as the most villainous Duke player, because he was bad, I felt like watching him play, like he was like way <laughs> worse than what his reputation was as a player. It somehow felt like he hadn't earned his spot. Like he was just like anointed out of high school as this guy who was going to be the Duke point guard. And he did all the kind of affectations of like slapping the floor and acting like he ran the place, like he was the coach. And he just sucks. Slapping the floor is bad. When Moses Scurry does it, it's awesome. <laughs> and I remember like when LSU played them in the 2006 NCAA tournament and Tyrus Thomas just like rejected his ass and he was just like fell on the floor. Like how satisfying that was just because I felt like he didn't belong there. And I feel like Grayson Allen does belong. And Luke Kennard, who's the best player on the Duke team, who's also white, that guy definitely belongs. And so I feel like I have more sympathy and don't root against the guys who I feel like have game. Mm-hmm. And like Greg Paulus and like Steve Wojciechowski to some extent. It's like why were you the players where you're more and like Bobby why, Hurley, why are you there? 
Like, what are you doing? But I don't think Brandon Ingram got any of this. Maybe he was only there for a year. But I think people just looked at him as, ooh, what an intriguing player. Never did anything to elbow trip a guy or have a terrible facial expression. And wasn't one of these Paulus uh, Hurley. Hurley was a good point guard facilitator. Mm -hmm. But guys who, you know, they're in the mold of guys without, you know, beautiful aesthetic basketball skills. At Hurley, you dig deep and he does have bonafide basketball skills skills, you know, passing and actual stuff that doesn't show up in the stat book. Sorry was great. It, but maybe, maybe Paul is doesn't and maybe uh, Wojo. Oh, Wojo and the floor burns. My, my favorite cover band in the Durham Raleigh area, but still very annoying. I mean, if Kyrie Irving had played more than 11 games and didn't <laughs> want and done at Duke, I don't think people would have been mocking him or calling him, um, calling him bad names for being a point guard at Duke. The- He's black though. I do like the fact that the one-year guys, whether it's Irving or Brandon Ingram, probably Harry Giles this year and uh, Tatum, that it just exposes the Duke as like every other program that these guys are using Duke and the Duke is using them. So Northwestern is coached by a, a branch of the Mike Krzyzewski coaching tree, Chris Collins. Scrappy. One of these scrappy white guys. And he is going to lead Northwestern to his first NCAA tournament appearance ever. Um, they're the only major conference team that has never made the tournament since 1939. They're 21 and 10, but there are enough teams that make the tournament now that there's no chance they're going to get left out. Stefan is. If I were a Northwestern alumnus, I would be waiting until next Sunday. To do what? <laughs> to celebrate. Their admission to the tournament. No, it's too late. They've all, they're already all celebrating. I checked. <laughs> I did a, I did a census. So Northwestern had the idea, like we are a place that thinks uh, very highly of ourselves as uh, Duke does because we're so awesome academically. And that doesn't mean we can't have a great basketball program too. Um, do you think that that's what's going on here is that they have successfully implemented the Duke way? way? Yeah. Uh, Collins says it directly. I mean, Collins has been very clear about the fact that I want, I wanted to mimic the ideals of Duke, but not try to recreate it. Um, from a basketball perspective, I mean, the, the switch is we're going to play the same sort of style that major college programs play as opposed to the decade plus of Bill Carmody, former Princeton coach, trying to run a different kind of offense that would employ players that didn't have, that weren't as good as at bigger programs in the Big Ten and elsewhere. We're going to outsmart them with our, outsmart with with our, our decided, decided schematic advantage. Yeah. They should have had Charlie Weiss coach them. Uh, so Collins wants to turn it into to Duke outside of Chicago, or Duke in Chicago. If we're looking at you know the Mike Krzyzewski coaching tree, I think the example here is Tommy Amaker, who turned Harvard from a school that had never cared about basketball, much less been good at it to one that like was winning NCAA tournament games. And he, I think, similarly did that by saying, we are not going to beat teams because we're like super geniuses and we will like run plays they've never seen before. We're going to sell Harvard and get like really, really, really like top four-star and five-star high school talent. And with some pen alum disclosure here, with some dodgy, more 
NCAA Division I, big major program type recruiting style. I mean, they were bringing guys in that were suspect academically, at least according to the history of Harvard's yeah. vaunted standards. Not yeah. that Penn didn't do 1,400 that. 1,400 SATs, stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. So the, the idea here is that- like six APs, but they got four on a couple of those exams, stuff like that. The idea here is that it took these geniuses, what, like uh, 80 years to figure out that the Keto being good at basketball is getting good basketball players. Yeah. The the uh, Northwestern has sent not too many players to the pros. Evan Eschmeyer in the year uh, oh, two thousand, yeah. and then before him, the uh, it was nineteen seventy nine was the last time Northwestern had a NBA player. So yes, you must get the good players. You would think that if they cared, they could have gotten some. I'm giving them in in over. Over 20 years, they could have gotten someone just based on the fact that, hey, you're in the Big Ten and it's a good school. And, Chicago. You know, we'll let you, we'll let you shoot a lot. We got no one else. Pretty campus. Thing. Yeah. All right. Oh, they play in a band box. What about the band box? Love a band box. Stefan, <laughs> we'll give you uh, 30 seconds to talk about the Ivy League tournament. Not a big fan of the Ivy League tournament, but the Quakers <gasps> uh, advanced to the tournament by sinking a three-pointer to beat Tommy Amaker and Harvard over the weekend. They're going in with that big six and eight record. I like, you know, I'm an Ivy League snob. I like the 14 game tournament, one bid. You Princeton was they're the last this year. They're the last school that determined its con- automatic, automatic conference. conference bid based on the regular season. And they have the last the last conference that decided that. But what do you think of the fact that only four teams go into the tournament? So I'm, there's no way that a horrible team could win except if Penn does. And Penn's not bad. They started zero and six in the in the in the Ivy League, which is really bad. Um, yeah, I mean, look, every other conference is an opera. There's a possibility that a horrible team is gonna is gonna make it, and it happens. And people love that. I mean, I don't know how much we love seeing an eleven and nineteen team get a sixteen seed uh, in in the tournament, but it happens. Um, the, you know, we're snobby in, in the Ivy League, and I think there is a the, the idea that get the fuck out of here. The idea that. <laughs> You know, a couple of extra games and this heightened excitement over a postseason tournament is going to somehow elevate the Ivy League's um, uh, the attention given to Ivy League basketball. It's kind of a fallacy. I do like the fact that all the games are at the Palestra because the Palestra is a is a great venue and it happens to be Penn's home court. The f- one yeah. they're doing a one four two three semifinals and then finals. I would have, I think, a smarter as other people have said would be give the the team that goes fourteen and zero some sort of advantage. You know, four against three, three that against team two, being. two against one, Princeton this year. Got to give Princeton an advantage. Yeah, they don't have enough advantages. Yeah. Final, right. final standings of the league, Princeton, Yale, Harvard. They don't get enough. Uh, we should, they don't we should enough also note that so at most the teams could play two games. Uh, half the teams will play one game. They eliminated a game from their regular season. No, so, they, no, no, no. They, they, not from the league's regular season, but from yeah, each team. Each team oh, yeah, had to but, cut a game. That's from the fine. non-conference. From the non-conference. Yeah, so yeah. there's almost no argument Enough. against it except, okay. Enough. Enough yep. with the Ivy League tournament. <laughs> Greg Paulus, you're now the, my, my number two enemy. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. 
Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Back in 2011, a little more than a year after LeBron James's televised decision to leave the Cleveland Cavaliers and take his talents to South Beach, Scott Rabb published The Whore of Akron. That book was a lot more than a diatribe against LeBron James. It was also a searching autobiographical account of Scott's life, his loves, and how he came to care so much about Cleveland sports. But it was also a diatribe against LeBron James, one that became a bit outdated when the King announced in 2014 that he was returning to Cleveland. Now, in the midst of LeBron's third year back in Northeast Ohio, two finals appearances and one NBA title later, Scott has written a sequel to The Whore of Akron, which is out this week. The title is You're Welcome, Cleveland, How I Helped LeBron James Win a Championship and Save a City. Welcome back to the show, the modest, the lovely (laughs) Mr. Scott Rabb. It's a joke. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, Appreciate it. You're welcome. You're welcome, Scott. Thank you. So my question for you is, uh, what are you renouncing from the first book and what aren't you renouncing? I want a full accounting. I renounce nothing. I, I, I rescind not a single word, including the title. However, <laughs> however, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, a more than a, a, a bit of embarrassment. Uh, it's not like I had any impact for good or ill on LeBron's uh, uh, career in, in Miami. And the idea that I got a chance, you know, I don't want to say late in life, but having waited 50, the full 52 years between championships, when, when he left, I found it convenient to frame an entire book and f- 50 years of my own misery uh, around a young, extremely successful athlete making a decision in free agency about where he, it, he felt it was best for, for him and his family. Uh, so I had to come to terms with that in a way I never anticipated. And of course, you know, writing another book about it kind of tells you who the real whore is in, in the equation. <laughs> I did not share the outrage of so many others over the Whore of Akron, though I think we talked about the title at one point. Um, I think part of the issue here is that you're operating on a different level as a fan. I mean, you're feeling this more deeply. Uh, You are connected with your city in a way that is profoundly more bathetic than most fans. Stefan lined up up all the fans, and he found that you feel it more the most deeply. No, no, no. Wait, wait. But you, but that, Scott, are able to articulate those thoughts in a in a in a way that yeah. I think LeBron certainly and probably a lot of fans aren't going to understand the nuance there. They're not interested in the nuance there. So you end up being the fat asshole who wanted LeBron to tear his ACL. Listen, I haven't lived in Cleveland since 1984, so there is a huge degree of, of embarrassment there. But part of the bathos of the relationship is what exists in my mind as a Cleveland that was a really buoyant city and a, and a Cleveland Browns franchise that really was a landmark for all the right reasons. So there's a weird, and, and again, to, to even, you know, label it anything like art is, is ridiculous. It's absurd. You know, when, when you're the, you know, it speaks for itself as writing, but the task seemed to me to be go deep, go, I may never write another book. This guy left, left Cleveland, did it in a manner that really did, kind of dragged the, uh, an already woe-be-gone uh, punchline of the city, you know, that the, the show on ESPN. And, and I, I think I, I put this into the new book. 
if you rolled a basketball out on the court for real, and it was me against LeBron with a decent sum of money at stake, you know, I think the mercy he would show me was exactly the mercy I showed the character LeBron, not the human being. You, you know, you're writing about someone I don't, I never had access, you know, the, directly to LeBron. So there's a level of insanity there on my part, but that goes with the commitment. You know, I'm going to go deep on this one. I'm not, not going to leave anything out on the floor, not because I'm LeBron James, because to me, that's what, what writing is. I'm not a journalist, really. I'm just a writer. As a, an exemplar of the arts, a refugee of the arts, let's talk about muses. Is it easier to have the muse of bad, whorish LeBron than uh, the good savior LeBron? You probably didn't have to gin up much emotion to want to write scathingly about when he was terrible. What, what about the motivation of uh, when he was great? I, I've learned a lot over the years. You know, I had 19 years at, at Esquire. Uh, uh, interviewed a lot of accomplished people and always kept my ears open, whoever it was, you know, to, to try and be open and to learn uh, from what they were telling me. I didn't do that with, with the athletes wearing Cleveland uniforms. They, they, were, they were scrims unto whom I could project all my neurosis and yearning and, you know, impotence and all, you know, all that stuff. They were, they were warrior heroes. And, and when I finally, you know, uh, in the wake of the first book, when I finally, you know, I kept following LeBron and realized, you know, th this is a remarkable young guy. He's, he's done in a couple years, he's been through uh, more successfully a transition at his age. That it took me thousands of hours of therapy and years of sobriety to really kind of work through some of the issues I thought I saw him work through. And the way he came back, you know, and, and really, again, it was a great time to leave the Heat and come to the Cavs. Uh, the, the Heat had they had they beaten San Antonio his last year in Miami. I'm sure he would have delayed his return a year. But I, you know, I felt inspired not just by the, the the Cavs victory, but just by the example of of a guy who at a, at a pretty young age uh, uh, had taken had taken on that Moses like burden. You know, I wrote the first book going, "You were supposed to be our." Mo it was kind of ridiculous. You're supposed to lead us out of the promised land. It's a big. It's a ridiculous burden for any fan to put on any young athlete. And he actually came back as kind of a Moses figure, not just on the court, but thousands of scholarship, college tuition scholarships for third graders in Akron and talking about feeling a calling beyond basketball. He did all that and he ended a 52-year drought. I mean, he didn't do it alone, but pretty much. Earlier this year, or earlier this season at least, there was a tiff between LeBron James and Phil Jackson around Jackson's use of the term posse to describe yeah. LeBron's team. And you're writing about race and you're self-critical about it. I think you would describe it as kind of your blindness to yes. race and the role that it played in your telling of the story was, you know, some of the most interesting passages in this book. Did you kind of cringe when you heard the Phil Jackson comments and sort of hear yourself a little bit from circa yeah. five years ago? A absolutely. I mean, there, you could be as progressive, you know, dyed in the wool in your own mind, kind of lefty, uh, you know, as, as a guy, I'm closer, I'll be 65 this year, much closer to Phil Jackson's age than LeBron. And I'm a white guy. So the idea when I was trying to work through in my mind, you know, what, what in the first book, you know, what am I responding? I don't know what I'm responding to in some ways. You don't know yourself that well. Those 
So, you know, the idea that LeBron and a small group of friends, Maverick Carter, Rich Paul, you know, that these guys uh, were somehow masters of the universe, I think the contempt and ridicule I felt certainly had plenty to do with race. My consciousness, I hope, was raised a little bit through what was going on with Donald Sterling, with the with the NBA, with LeBron after the Sterling thing, saying we can't have this in our league. And it became a matter of real interest to me, that whole dynamic, including David Blatt, this Euro Euro League uh, coach, this Israeli who graduated from Princeton, you know, American born, dual citizen, you know, stepping into the NBA with no understanding of the culture of the league. And suddenly, instead of coaching a young team with, you know, Andrew Wiggins, Kyrie Irving, Deion Waiters and, and teach them and grow with them. He's got LeBron. And some of LeBron's, you know, old head guys, James Jones and Mike Miller. And it became, I'm not sure that, that, you know, I understand any of it, but I wanted to write about it because to me, it's, it's right in front of our eyes, all of our eyes. And I think that comes off loud and clear. I mean, your passages about David Blatt are a hysterical. I mean, you call the guy a dildo in the book, which is pretty funny. Um, and B, they are very telling about the state of the NBA and the arrogance of at least this particular coach and his suppositions or assumptions about how his career coaching in Turkey and Israel and Greece would translate to coaching in, in the NBA. Um, the book is also a lot about atonement yeah. and in a, in a real serious way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not just for atoning about the whore of Akron, but I think for other things, what were you, what were you atoning for? Well, there there was a feeling of, uh, you know, and it's one of those things, again, coming up as a fiction writer, I've thrown everyone under the bus. You know, in my in my fiction, I was that way as a magazine writer. I was never afraid to call someone a dildo. You know, I was never, I kind of, you know, that that don't give a damn kind of, kind of writer, not because it's art, but because I started writing because I'm in total control. So I think, I think part of it for me was coming to terms with the fact that I've got a kid, you know, and, I, and I've got a public, you know, a, a kind of a cult public persona. And, and you know, I had, LeBron has children. So part of it was literally on, on, on one Yom Kippur, you know, I, I'm back in synagogue in New Jersey. I'm, I'm really thinking about the fact, I called the book The Horror of Akron. I could, I could talk to people about, you know, The Horror of Babylon and Revelations and Woody Allen's The Horror of Mensa short story. And it's a lighthearted title, but that, that guy's kids are going to look at that book one day. You know, they're going to be aware somewhere in the world that there, there's some guy who basically, uh, uh, you know, wrote a book about their dad and called it the Horror of Akron. So when you atoned and cast your sins to the river, did they catch on fire? <laughs> I, I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting. You know, you know no, I, excellent. I have, a, no. I have a serious question. Serious question. I yeah. know I, I, I take your whole point. I haven't read the new book. Uh, yeah. read the old one. I look yeah. forward to it. But I want to know, do you still think Jim Gray's a dick? Total dick. And I say that <laughs> as someone listen, I'm I'm still, you know, I'm 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 trying to I'm not touring in support of a book, but you know, I mean it's it's really it became clear to me a while ago that I actually had a magazine career. You know, I, I we're all we're all a dick, but Jim Jim Gray, you know, and maybe it's me. But he seems like he goes the extra dick mile. <laughs> We're all a dick. We're we are all, all dick. Uh, we are all a dick. Yeah. The book is "You're Welcome, Cleveland: How I Helped LeBron James Win a Championship 
and save a city. The author slash dick is Scott Rabb. Scott, oh. you're our fa- you're our favorite dick. Thank you for uh, Thank coming on the you. show. Always a, always an honor and a pleasure, guys. Thank you. I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Back in January, the poker pros Jason Less, Daniel McCauley, Jimmy Cho, and Don Kim schlepped themselves to the Rivers Casino in Pittsburgh for a match against Libratus a computer program that is expert in heads-up, no-limit Texas Hold'em. That's the variant of poker in which two people or a person in a computer, or two computers, I suppose, go one-on-one with each of them getting two private cards that they then combine with five shared public cards to form the best hand. There are various rounds of betting, and it's a game where we've been led to believe, at least, the human element is particularly important because bluffing is a regular feature, And you're at an advantage, supposedly, if you can get a read on how your opponent plays. As Ali Rader wrote in 538, for the past few decades, humans have ceded thrones to artificial intelligence in games of all kinds. There was Chinook, which uh, won the Man vs. Machine World Checkers Championship in 1995. There was Deep Blue, which beat Garry Kasparov in 1997 in the game of chess. Checkers was solved in 2007, mathematically ensuring the no human would ever again beat the best machine. There was Watson and Jeopardy. There was the computer program that beat a human champion in Go. And poker, Ali wrote, maybe close to all we have left. Joining us now is Ali Rader. Hey, Ali. Hey, how are you? I'm sad because <laughs> for after, humanity. After January, tell us what happened. Poker, we don't have poker anymore. Uh, yeah, the the quartet of humans got completely smoked by this computer uh, poker playing program called Libratus. I think they ended up in the hole something like one and a half million play dollars, and it was a uh, why yeah, no just, real skin in the game, humans. Well, I, I I had dinner with these guys, and I asked them. This was early on in the match uh, whether they would play the next day for cold hard cash rather than digital dollars, and unanimously they said yes, absolutely. But uh, one of humanity's weaknesses is pride, of course. So, what happened in the match? Like, how did it transpire? Was it clear from the very beginning that these guys were going down, or was it more of a gradual dawning? of the realization that their feeble minds were not enough against Libratus. And did the computer gloat at any point? <laughs> <laughs> well, they they held their own for about a week. Uh, so the match was 120,000 hands over three weeks of play. And uh, yeah, for about a week, it was pretty even. And when I talked to the humans, they were in high spirits, at, at the end of every game day, they would go to a restaurant and sort of break down the data from that day's hands and try to figure out just what the computer was trying to do and, and how they could counter it. Um, and spirits were high until day six. Uh, and on day seven, uh, everything kind of started to go to hell. Uh, and they were pretty much out of the match by, by the midway point. 
Did the computer wear glasses? Did he separate an Oreo when he was bluffing? Did he wear a gray hooded sweatshirt? Why are you assuming tight? the computer is a male? Mm-hmm. That's right. My actual question is, hilarious as those suppositions are, my actual question is, do we read into the fact that it took so long for hell to break loose the fact that the computer was learning or that the humans were fatiguing? Um, maybe a little of both. I, I might lean toward the first explanation that the computer was learning and adjusting. Um, so the computer was sitting in uh, a Pittsburgh suburb. It's a $10 million Hewlett Packard supercomputer, but it had its two sort of human emissaries, uh, Thomas Santom, who's a professor at Carnegie Mellon, and his PhD student, Noam Brown. And they were a little bit coy as to exactly what they were doing during the match. Uh, but they reserved the right to tweak their poker playing program uh, at, at between game days so they could sort of observe what was happening, try out different uh, strategies with the computer. And then the computer itself, of course, learns by observing what its human uh, opponents uh, were trying to do. Poker was one of the last frontiers. Go, the ancient Chinese game, was another last frontier. Go was one that has intrigued programmers for decades. So complex that programmers feel, and players felt that it, it more resembles the human mind. Uh, it's this 19 by 19 grid of lines. It's sort of the real Othello. It's what Othello was based on. And there are subtle strategies, um, as in chess trillions of possible moves if you start looking ahead in the game. And I went back and I was looking at um, a file I have in my filing cabinet because I was thinking about writing about this a long time ago and was looking at a New York Times story from 2002 about Go. And the programmer speculated that it would be decades before a program would be strong enough to beat a top human player. In the 1990s, there was even a, a million and a half dollar prize being offered to programmers who could uh, beat a top player that went unclaimed. What has happened in the last two decades that has allowed all of these games to go down? And Josh didn't mention the game that you and I play, Scrabble, which fell in the late 1990s. And it's pretty much acknowledged that has a tremendous advantage in programs such as Maven originally and now a program called Quackle. Yeah, I think I think it's a few different things. I think uh, kind of inevitably hardware has gotten a lot better. So this poker playing program is is heavily reliant on the fact that it does run on a supercomputer. Whereas nowadays, you know, even my smartphone can beat some of the best chess players or my laptop can beat some of the best Scrabble players. This poker pro program really relies on this heavy machinery. Uh, so I think that's one thing. I think, you know, um, algorithmic improvements, you know, this, these uh, improvements in deep learning and reinforcement kind of learning AI. And I think another thing is just there's been a lot of funding and interest in solving these gaming problems from people with a lot of money. So IBM was behind ch beating chess and Jeopardy. Google was behind uh, beating Go. Facebook has also done some uh, Go-related research. And then the poker uh, computer had you know the full support of, of Carnegie Mellon and, and a lot of tech companies too. So there's just been a lot of sort of moneyed interest that can really fund and drive these efforts. So with all of these games, the top players, kind of before the AI takes over, there's a common kind of dialogue that happens. There's 
well, there's something uniquely human about the way that the game is played. You know, you need to be able to look at the opponent. And that, I think, is particularly, you know, believed in poker that even with the rise of online poker, guys who play in the casino say that they have an advantage, like playing with real chips and having experience, you know, looking at tells and just being in the casino, that that gives them um, an edge over guys who just play, you know, at home on their laptops. And I'm wondering if that sort of rhetoric changed, if if you saw them kind of change their view on that as this match was playing out, or if there's still a belief in that among these pros who just lost to Labratus. Yeah, I think that the pros would say there's a little something to this, what they might call table play, this idea that you can gain an advantage from from reading people or, or listening to how they're talking about the hand or whatever. But these guys play, I mean, some of them ha- probably haven't stepped foot in a casino for a long time. I mean, they play almost exclusively on the internet uh, where, you know, you can't even see who you're playing against. And, and to them, this is really a mathematical game more than sort of the the saloon kind of Texas game that it was, you know, a hundred years ago um, with the guys who invented it. So for them, it's a very, very deep, very, very subtle um, piece of game theory, really. And I think any kind of reading tells and that kind of thing beyond, you know, reading the actual plays is kind of overblown, I think, maybe in, in the public's mind. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right, because I think these, the, this whole this whole arc of all of this is framed typically in the media as the decline of humanity. And in reality, the people that devote their lives to these games love the bots. I mean, they want the computer programs to be as sophisticated as possible because it helps them to understand the game that much better. Right. Right. And yeah, one of the most insightful people I spoke with when I was reporting this story was my Uber driver uh, who said the genius is the one who created the machine. Right. So one thing we need to remember is that humans created this machine. So I don't think we need to you know, shed too many he- tears for humanity necessarily. And then the machine will kill the humans. I, uh, yeah, I, I th- first of all, I predict that they, he did beat this one group of humans. He, computer, it doesn't mean that he would beat all, he, computer, it would beat all groups of humans. I think maybe the humans were at a disadvantage because they didn't, they, they couldn't get a read on the computer. Maybe it's the fact that the computer's style of play changed as it learned, but, you know, a human being would maybe in future games be able to price that in. I'm wondering if you know, so there are different aspects to poker, and I think people who don't play think that tells are, because they've been so emphasized and they look good in a movie or whatever, tells are extremely important, but they're extremely not important. You know, a good pro will say, you know, once out of every a thousand hands, I'll pick up a tell on someone that I ever use. However, here are some aspects of poker. One is just knowing the odds. Of course, the computer's going to know the odds, but the odds of Hold'em aren't that complex. Every good player knows all the odds. The other is putting your opponents on a hand, correctly being able to discern what the opponent has. And the way to do this is not through tells, but it's by, you know, bet patterns. And the third is bluffing um, or 
maxim I, I should say it's more than bluffing. It's maximizing the amount you get paid for good hands and occasionally doing uh, the right thing to win bad hands. And this probably also includes aggressive betting patterns that get your opponents out of a pot that they maybe would have won because you bet correctly. You know, I don't know how far into it do you, you go, but were there any strengths or weaknesses from all these different aspects of poker that the computer showed? Yeah, absolutely. So all the humans told me that the computer was extremely aggressive. Um, so that's not necessarily a strength, but that was a fact that they all observed. This computer was extremely aggressive, far more so than its predecessor, who the humans had beat uh, about a year and a half ago. But I think there is it, there is kind of one specific type of strength that this computer program has. So in this game uh, of poker, which is a game of imperfect information, uh, one thing you want to do often is is to randomize. So what I mean is, say you have a very strong hand, sometimes you might want to bet the hand for obvious reasons, and sometimes you might want to say check and hope your opponent bets and then get a lucrative, what they call a check raise. So there's a lot of different options that you might consider, and you want to randomize between these to sort of keep your opponent on his or her toes, to forestall any sort of counter strategy. And humans are very, very bad at randomizing. I'll give you an example. Uh, Jason Less, one of the players, would sometimes use the second hand on his watch to randomize. So if the second hand was between 0 and 30, he'd do one thing, and 30 and 60, he'd do another. Whereas the computer is able to keep a huge menu of options and bet sizes and randomize between them in a very subtle way. Whereas if a human tried to do that, uh, he would just get kind of lost in the thicket of his own plan, whereas the computer can really have this very subtle randomized strategy. So what are the next frontiers? Um, this is obviously um, just heads up poker. There are other variants, but um, whether it's poker or other games, what are the big AI challenges that are still out there? So I, I think this is this is one of the kind of bigger popular like named games that a lot of people would know. I think there are still games. There's some variants of like Chinese chess that are extremely complicated. But I think if you ask the guys who created this poker playing program, they would say the real world, right? All kinds of things we do every day are games like business negotiations, um, billion dollar spectrum auctions, uh, even warfare. So I think that these guys would kind of expand the definition of game and say, look, if we can do this, we can do any number of quote unquote real world things. So I'm sure there's some, you know, capital G games left out there. But I think uh, these programmers are pretty eager to kind of take this into the world of business or possibly even the world of politics. And when the computer solves warfare, we can just be proud that we designed it. Yeah. <laughs> Hooray. Ali Rader wrote about this uh, poker challenge and the uh, program Libratus for 538. We'll have links to his stories on our show page. Ali, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. 
Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Now it is time for Afterballs and like on Family Feud, the father of our Hang Up and Listen family, Stefan Fatsis, is going to go off the board and bring in an afterball name that has nothing to do with anything we've talked about. What do you have for us, Stefan? Uh, I was doing some research for my afterball, and I came <laughs> across the name of a uh, 19th century baseball player, High Pockets Kelly. I think his name is George. But he is listed in baseball reference as High Pockets. High Pockets has to be one of the great nicknames of all time. And the word, it's a word. High Pockets, closed compound, run together. Uh, Merriam-Webster's on a bridge dictionary. A very tall, lank man. Whenever you say High Pockets, I want to sing the Hot Pockets theme song. So yeah. listeners out there are thinking the same thing. I'm, I feel you. He's I'm a Hall there, of Fame. I'm right there with you. High Pockets Kelly's in the Hall of Fame. I enjoy uh, I enjoy Jim Gaffigan's high pockets Kelly bit. Great, <laughs> he was How, six foot four. That's why he was high pockets. He was a tall drink of water. What is mm. your high pockets, Mike Pesca? So I'll, I'll let you in a little bit, you, dear listener, on how the show is run. Some, not everyone says everything perfectly all the time. And when someone makes a mistake every once in a while, we'll say, hey, can you do that again? And so a reference that Scott Rabb made to uh, the wrong Wiggins, and I believe his initial reference was to Alan Wiggins, not to Andrew Wiggins. Josh notified of this. So when you heard that segment, you heard an Andrew Wiggins reference. But when he said Alan Wiggins, uh, Stefan and I both said, Alan Wiggins, he played for the Orioles. He played for the Padres. Yes, we both remembered Alan Wiggins, who once stole 70 bases in a season. And uh, then it was further recalled that, wait, wasn't he the first Major League Baseball player, if not the first well-known athlete, to die of AIDS? And indeed he was. And I remember I had this uh, inkling in my brain that Steve Garvey was the only member of the, his only Padre teammate, only member of the 1984 Padres, Padres World Series team who attended the service. Lee Lacey was the only Oriole player, and they said there were only five former teammates who were there at the funeral back at a time when, I don't know, either AIDS was uh, scary or uh, Alan Wiggins was still misunderstood and radioactive because Wiggins had a really interesting life and he was uh, oftentimes a political lightning rod and would do things to his teammates that I think today would be understood better as um, p- p- an act of political expression, but back then was just seen as you know him being difficult or diffident. And there is a uh, story about his daughter, Candace Wiggins, who's an excellent player in the WNBA. And it's about how she came to understand her father's death and how she came to redefine it as something other than shame. And it just begins with the words, Alan Wiggins was a professional baseball player who succumbed to the pressures of racism by using drugs. And when I first read that, I said, that's kind of reductive. And yet, the more you read about Alan Wiggins, it seems a bit 
apt as a description. The other really interesting thing about Alan Wiggins, and I played rotisserie baseball back then, and I always used to like to have Alan Wiggins on my team because it was an easy 60 stolen bases. Um, the other interesting thing is that, so he did play for the Padres, and the Padres were owned by the Crocs, and Joan Croc was really running the Padres then. And I have uh, recently read Lisa Napoli's book, essentially about Joan and Ray Croc, but a lot of it was about Joan and what an interesting person she was. And one of her life goals, she founded an organization called Cork, which was raising awareness about alcoholism. So she was kind of on the forefront of substance abuse and alcoholism. She was the owner of the Padres. So how did she deal with these revelations that Alan Wiggins was, he was arrested for drug use, that he was using drugs? She cut him and she said he'd have he'd never have a place with the Padres again. She in fact, stigmatized him. And I read some other stories about, you know, Yankees or some other teams being interested. And that was a real black mark against Island Wiggins. And it just goes to show, I think, the distance that we've come. Joan Croc, Harton, absolutely the right place. One of the first people who was standing up for alcoholism back then saying that what you do with someone who was going through substance abuse problems is you castigate them out of the community. I think we've come a, a far way on that. And so I just think that through the prison of Alan Wiggins, whose name just haphazardly came up on our show, uh, there's a lot to be said about how far sports and society have come. Excellent. Stefan, what is your high pockets? On Friday, a baseball writer named Brandon Warren, who covers the Minnesota Twins for a, a local website called Zone Coverage, he sent out a tweet. Quote this tweet with the best MLB player ever who shares your initials off the top of your head. As of this morning, about 600 people had obliged, and the first Ooh, to reply mine. was a guy. Yeah, we'll get to that. The first to reply was a guy named Michael Salfino, who wrote Mackie Sasser and was instantly chastised by someone who said Mike Schmidt. To which Salfino replied, no way, I pick a Philly icon. So that was a good start. Jonah Carey wrote, Jerry Cons. Come on, man. Jim Cott, Jimmy Key, Jeff Kent, John Cruck, Hall of Famer Joe Kelly. Jerry Kuzman. Not High Pockets Kelly, Joe Kelly. Uh, Jerry Kuzman. Early 70s Yankees, third baseman Jerry Kenny, one of my heroes. A dude with the initials BB said, I guess I win this game which drew a good reply. Not Bobby Bonilla. He's 54 and still on the payroll. A lot of people just couldn't think of good players with their initials. An LS wrote former Expos first baseman Lee Stevens. Another picked Louis Soho, which I respect, but both forgot Lee Smith. An LO said Lefty O'Doul edges out Lyle Overbay. A guy named Sean Ugh. O'Donohue went with Shohei Otani, but was corrected with Sadaharu O, oh, who's not a major league player, but... I think we should allow it. People pick Tommy Agee and Johnny Evers and Jim Abbott and Chet Lemon and Bartolo Colon and Vernon Wells and Sean Dunstan and Drew Henson even. A guy named Miles Handley went with Micah Hoffpower, who played for the Cubs for parts of three seasons not long ago, earning him a, come on, Mickey Hatcher. David Cohn replied to the thread. Yes, the real David Cohn replied. Dean Chance, he wrote which seems like a humble brag to me because you know David Cohn wanted to write David Cohn. Sean Foreman of Baseball Reference played along by compiling a ranked list of MLB initials. Yes. <clears throat> I know the one. last one. You ready? Well, what's the, go ahead. I mean, I was just thinking this whole time, if your initials are UU, you're pretty much doomed to Ergeth Urbina. Yeah. There are a lot of <laughs> initials that have nobody. 
by oh, the way. Oh, okay. Yeah. JM is first, 312 players, followed by JB at 309, and then there's a steep drop to JS at 260 and BB at 224. Paul Moringer, who writes for Hardball Times and Fangraphs, took it a step further. He took the list of initials and created his own, in my opinion, list of the best player for every one of the 500-plus initial combinations, which is both amazing and a little scary. In any case, here's a hearty fuck you to everybody with a Hall of Fame initials who noted their connections in this thread. You know who you are, BR, HA, JD, MM, LG, TC, SK, MR, U2, CY, GM, BF, Bob Feller, SM, TW, a JB, Jeff Bajanaru, posted a gif of Johnny Bench, because we needed to see Johnny Bench. And a JR, Justin Rebello gloated, this was tough. I was dangerously close to throwing out Jeff Reardon. I looked at our three names. Josh mm-hmm. has a lot to choose from. Yeah, I got one obvious one. 862 major league players with the last name starting with L. 129 have the first name starting with J. A healthy 15%, Josh, you are blessed. No Hall of Fame JLs, but John Lackey, John Lester, Javi Lopez, Jim Lonborg, Jim Leyritz. Not bad. Jim Leyritz. The first one that came to mind for me was Jeffrey Leonard for some reason. One flap down. Yeah, Jeff Leonard. Good manager, Jim Leland. Yep. Pesca, 57 MPs overall, 6.3% of the 899 Ps. Let him say first. uh, You win. It's got to be be Mike Piazza. Yeah, you got a Hall of Famer. And not only that, he's from your team. I mean, you are blessed. (laughs) What about Again, Mike, and what we're about, both Italian. What about right. Mike Mike Pagliarulo? Mike Pagliarulo would have been mm, at the top tags. of my MP list. Milt Pappas also, the Greek thing, I would have gone with. Mel Parnell, Mark Portugal, Melito Perez. It's just a, a, a plethora of MPs. I, however- It's a myriad plethora. I am by far the worst on this show. Only 33 SFs in baseball history, just 5% of the 660 can you Fs. Can you think of one, I Mike? Know. I know, yeah, I know who your spirit animal SF would be. But would he's not be? a great player, but it'd be Sam Fold. Sam Fold, correct. What about Sean Foreman of Baseball Reference? My scrappy white guy, <laughs> Sam Fold. Uh, Sal Fasano, Steve Farr. My two yeah. best, the two best Sal SFs Fizzano. are probably Steve Finley and yeah. Fat Sid Fernandez, which is really a hurting crop of SFs. I do have Steve Fire Ovid, though, who's got a great name, and there's some excellent early. Uh, late 19th and early 20th century players listed in baseball reference by their nicknames. Skipper Friday, mm. Showboat Fisher, Silver Flint, <laughs> Shorty Fuller, Steamer Flanagan. I love Steamer Flanagan. Center fielder for the Pirates in 1905, 25 at bats, seven hits, three RBIs, a war of 0.3. Ste- Steamer Flanagan is my spirit animal. <laughs> Josh, what's your uh, high pockets, Kelly? Last week, Ned Garver died at the age of 91. He was a pitcher for the very bad St. Louis Browns during the Bill Veck era when the P.T. Barnum-esque owner sent little person Eddie Goddell to the plate as a pinch hitter and, as we discussed on the show a few weeks ago, allowed the fans to manage the game from the grandstands. Both of those uh, incidents, events, happened in 1951. That year, the Browns finished 52-102. and and Ned Garver went 20 and 12. It's the only time in baseball history that a guy has won 20 games for a team that lost 100. Vec just kept throwing uh, Garver out there at the end of the year, just trying to get him that 20th win. They succeeded. 
uh, the glorious St. Louis Browns, 52 and 102, but number one in your hearts. So back in 2015, our pals Ben Lindbergh and Sam Miller decided to call Garver on a lark during a taping of their podcast, Effectively Wild, based on their patter before the segment. They had apparently tried this before and it had not gone very well, but this time they uh, got podcast gold. It's an amazing conversation. It's delightful. Garver was then 89 years old and was very happy to talk to two uh, nerdy baseball writers about his career. I'm going to play a segment from that episode of Effectively Wild where uh, Ben asks Ned Garver about his surprisingly uh, good batting statistics. I was also just noticing that you really could hit <laughs> early on in your career in that uh, in that 51 season when you won 20 games, you hit 305 with some power too. So that was uh, that was a pretty significant contribution also. I could hit. Yeah, yeah I could hit. Uh, the first year I played ball, I hit 407. I did. I played some other position, and I odd on some days, and I pinch hit a lot. And in 1951, although pitchers don't get much chance to take batting practice, and the longer you go, the less chance you have, I think, of being a good hitter. Well, anyway, the Browns didn't let me take batting practice, but in 1951, on some occasions, I hit sixth in the lineup, mm. and I batted three. I led the team in hitting at 305, and I did. I pinch hit 10 times. Yeah in, yeah, in your career, you pinch hit 19 times, and you hit 313 with three walks in those uh, in 19 try, tries. Well. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that year I got four hits out of 10, which is hitting 400. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, and I, you know, I, when early wind about took my head off, that kind of that kind of shut me off as a hitter. Is that right? Scared me. It scared me. I I almost got hit in the head. And uh, doggone it, I thought I I wasn't making a dime as a hitter. They never paid me anything extra for for batting good and pinch hitting and stuff like that. So I said, you know, if I get hurt, if I get hurt, then I. I won't be able to pitch and I won't be able to earn my living, you know, so. So the thing that I really like about that, uh, A, Ned Garver, just a delightful human, and you should listen to the whole episode, but it actually provides an explanation for a statistical anomaly. And, you know, Sam Miller looked up the stats and indeed Ned hit 269 before getting buzzed in the head by early when, and he had 184 for his career afterwards. And he goes on to explain to the guys that he just stopped trying to get hits after that, that he would just kind of stand there and be happy to, you know, take his out. But it's just an example of, you know, you can look at the statistical record for an old uh, player, but sometimes the answer to why something happened uh, is an an anecdote that, you know, might be lost to history. And if baseball prospectus exists for any reason, it's to get the word out there that statistics are bullshit. They don't tell the story. It's all about people. What's on the inside. 
Can't measure same with that. same with Fangraphs. Effectively yeah. Wild is now hosted on Fangraphs. It's Ben Lindbergh and Jeff Sullivan. I'll provide a link on our show page. And Ben's Stephen. doing the Ringer show too. All the, it's a podcasting empire from the Effectively oh, wow. Wild Boys. Uh, Stefan, you've got some late breaking news for us. Uh, yes, late breaking news from the baseball initials department. I just received a direct message from Sean Foreman of Baseball Reference. He sent me a complete list of baseball player initials and the player with the highest war for each initial. Should we just start the whole episode over from the top? We really should. There are a lot of players with- Should we rename the podcast? There is no QO, no SI in baseball history. There are a lot of players with just one one initial. There's no SI? There's no SI. Uh, a lot of players, just one player for Steve initial Inskeep? set. Steve Inskeep, not yet in the big leagues. <laughs> the sweet hitting middle infielder for the Indianapolis Clowns? There's what? There's ZZ, Zip Zable. <laughs> Yeah. Zip Zable. The worst player on this list. The lowest. Lowest war, war for the best initial. For best the guy one, for, the, one initial, for the initials. Yeah. Ned Yost, negative 3.69 as a player. Yeah. And yeah. worse as a manager. <laughs> there we go. Let's I, end it we there, will, We will post this. We're somewhere. On our <laughs> Please. <show page. laughs> Please. Uh, <laughs> we'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hangup and listen in iTunes. You can find us at iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan on Facebook at Facebook.com slash hangup and listen. Our intern is Adam Willis. Our producer is Patrick Fort. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Members on Mobady, and thanks for listening. You can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.